Welcome to this, the first in a series of podcasts brought to you by Thrive London and Good Thinking. My name's Tracy Parr and I'm the Director of Transformation for Good Thinking, which is London's digital mental wellbeing service. These are challenging and uncertain times for all of us. And over the coming weeks, we'll be publishing a series of podcasts on a variety of subjects from experiences of people directly or indirectly affected by coronavirus and the approaches they are taking to stay mentally well, to top tips on what you can do to stay healthy. In this first podcast, Good Thinking's clinical director, psychiatrist Dr Richard Graham, is in discussion with GP Dr Bob Levin. Bob was in the unique position of being in the first cluster of people in Britain to contract coronavirus. Here he discusses his experience and the approaches he took to cope with being medically isolated away from his family. Over to you, Richard and Bob. Thank you, Tracy, And thank you so much, Bob, for making time in this frantic phase of, of many people's lives to, to share with our listeners the experiences you've had. I think we've learned in recent years that we can really help other people's mental health through sharing our own experiences. And in terms of coronavirus, you're definitely ahead of the curve. Yeah, that's true. Well, so it, thanks, Tracy, and thanks, Richard. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. It's probably good to start somewhere near the beginning. Can you let us know how you got into the situation you did, what was happening before, and the sort of twists and turns along the way? Uh, yeah, I was the uh, one of the first groups to be affected by the coronavirus, and that was through a ski holiday in France where uh, a friend of ours had been to Asia and came along to ski with close to 15 friends. And that's where we ended up, you know, down the path that we now see everywhere. So there you were in France, enjoying time with your, your friends skiing. When did it first sort of strike you that the friend coming from Asia could have an impact on you all? Oh, not really until we got back to uh, Brighton. He had found out through his company that the meeting he had attended in, in Asia had a few, several people had come forward and uh, gotten sick, and um, they learned that they had had coronavirus, and that was communi communicated to him. And so we heard through him that he needed to get tested. Right. So you were back in the UK, having had a great holiday, I guess. All of you kind of oblivious to the possible things that would then follow. Yes. Yeah, we were, although uh, we had an idea of my, what might happen. Um, also, we had all uh, had various degrees of uh, symptoms. Uh, our, our illnesses were all slightly different, but we had all, most of us had had some kind of uh, ill health after that or during the trip, uh, during the ski holiday. Once our friend found out that he was positive and we learned that he was being taken up to London uh, and that we obviously needed to be tested, things really changed quickly at that point. Right. And what was the time period between your friend going up to London and, and you realizing things were about to change for you? Well, we weren't, uh, none of us were completely sure, but uh, the, the day that he, he found out, we found out that evening and immediately isolated ourselves. Uh, we, had a, we all had testing done the next day and then found out about 36 hours later that we were positive. So we knew uh, 
Uh, I think we all kind of felt there was a good chance that we would be positive after he had tested positive and that it looked like that meant uh, isolation in one of the respiratory wards up in London. Right. So you get the results back of the test and what happened next? Before getting the test results, there was a lot of activity going on with communicating between all of us and trying to uh, coordinate testing with public health. We finally got tested Friday night and found out Sunday afternoon that we were indeed positive. And at that point, uh, we talked with public health. Uh, They wanted to start contact tracing right away. And we also talked to Mm -hmm. microbiology was, I think it was microbiology or infectious disease that called us with the results. And there were several calls going on. And finally, we got the call that um, they told us that arrangements had to be made and we would be going up to London, but they had to figure out how and when. And uh, eventually we got a phone call saying that um, designating which hospitals we would go to and at what time they would pick us up. And we were all uh, we, we didn't all go up at the same time, but quite a few of us went up in the wee hours of well, Sunday night, Monday morning. So at around 3.30 a.m., I got a call that the ambulance crew would call me, and they told me they would be picking me up at 3 a.m., and it became 3.30 a.m. in an ambulance with uh, you know full hazmat suits, PPE, personal protective equipment, and that we'd be taken up to uh, the Royal Free Hospital. Right. So in a very short space of going from testing, living with all the uncertainty in between, you then get the ambulance turning up like uh, something out of a film, I guess. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the middle of the night, I think that was to avoid scrutiny and probably make it more confidential for us also. And also that uh, I think they wanted to avoid any kind of traffic going into London. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have any sleep that night. We had kind of mixed messages of what we could take, but I had talked to a friend who uh, was coming from another part. Most of our friends were in Brighton, but uh, uh, one person was not. I spoke with him and he was told uh, not to bring any any luggage or any you know roller bag or anything like that because it could be... Um, they weren't sure if it was going to be incinerated or we could leave with it. And at that point, I started repacking and putting every, uh, taking fewer things and putting things into plastic bags. Uh, I had no sleep that night. I was lucky to be able to go up with a friend in the ambulance, which was kind of nice. So we had some, I had some company, some camaraderie at that point. But it was a little bit comical because the ambulance drivers, they're not, you know, they're not taxi drivers. They couldn't find my flat and I had to keep redirecting them as I was looking out the window for the flashing blue lights. Yeah. <laughs> so in the middle of this extraordinary yeah. emergency yeah. crisis, human error manages yeah. or, or a sat nav, the brilliance of artificial intelligence comes to the rescue. I kept saying, go away from the, go away from the sea, go away from the sea. Well, perhaps they wanted some downtime themselves. Yeah. Um, just looking back, I mean, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? You know, if you could advise yourself then on what to take with you, did you get some things right? Do you think there were some things you thought, yeah, I really could have 
done with that. If I'd have taken that, that would have really helped. Because I guess lots of people may find themselves, you know, urgently mm, going yeah. into isolation. Or... Yes and no. What What was very interesting is, um, which uh, what I didn't mention is, uh, quite a few of our friends ended up trapped in France because this ski holiday had was a in total was two weeks. So people were coming and going and some I left at the end of the first week. So other people were coming and going and staying longer periods. They all, they ended up in three different French hospitals. We ended up in here in the UK, the ones who had come back prior to all this happening. We ended up in two different hospitals in London and all of them had different, uh, different requirements, uh, or different guidelines on what what could be taken out of the room once we were in it. Mm -hmm. And so some, the French seemed to allow everybody to bag up their clothes and leave them in a bag for 10 days and then wash them at 60 degrees or something along those lines and to take their mm -hmm. papers out. The, at the Royal Free, they decided we couldn't leave with our clothes or with any uh, books or paper. And so... Um, so it really depends what, what the hospitals are saying. Uh, I brought mm -hmm. two books up and I couldn't leave with those books and to leave, you know, they, they wouldn't allow that. And, uh, some of the clothes I brought, I didn't bring, I, I wouldn't bring anything of, 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 you know, personal value really, um, in terms of clothing, because mm. uh, they were able to wash some things in a in an autoclave like machine at incredibly high temperatures the day before i left but this the things i was wearing that day i had to leave in the room so i lost uh, some clothes and lost some books um yeah i would yeah. i would say i would have it would have been good to bring up a pair of old trainers in the hopes of getting some exercise in but uh, you make the point that basically don't take anything that wouldn't survive a boil wash because that may be your best sort of hope. Yeah. How, how, how did they deal with, with the tech side of things? Because I would have thought many people thinking about isolation will be thinking about their phones, mm. tablets, and a laptop. And of course, we know, you know, those can be places the virus can, can exist on for, for some time. Was, was that something you had to struggle with? Uh, well, that, that was the one message that came through that iPhones, you know, smartphones and tablets should be fine. Uh, and and it turned out that we all got we all had those returned to us. They were able to disinfect them in a particular way. I'm not sure exactly with what kind of solution, and they all survived fine. So tablets and i uh, and smartphones, iPhones were fine. A friend also had a laptop, and that became a bone of contention. He eventually got his laptop back after a different kind of process that left it slightly sticky but functioning. <laughs> Okay, well, perhaps it's still still worth it, but I, I can see that yeah, the flat screen is probably easier yeah, to clean yeah, from less, a less, phone or tablet than a keyboard. Yeah, less nooks and crannies, I think. Um, yeah, so yeah, bring you know you, you need to bring things. I think people who end up in isolation in such a setting would want to make sure they have things to read, but probably not their most yeah. valued additions. I guess the other thing that will often be an issue is how good your connection to the internet might be if you're in hospital or isolated. And I guess, would you think 
sort of kind of preparing, you know, some physical media that you could store on your phone. Oh, that would have been, yes, that would have been wonderful for me because uh, some of the, the, the Wi-Fi in the hospitals, I don't know, I'm not completely sure about this, but it seemed to block streaming and they, they weren't able to, to change that for us. So we weren't able to stream, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime any of those services, yeah. unless you had a really good phone signal. And I, I was up in the Royal Free with two other, two other of my friends, two other friends from the ski holiday. They had a different uh, uh, phone providers. They were with, uh, oh, I can't remember who they were with, but they had a really good signal, a really good 4G signal, and I didn't. Mine kept coming and going. So, yeah, that was, that was definitely a frustration. And had, if I... If I had had the presence of mind, I would have preloaded some, uh, some yeah. Uh, yeah, box sets. Yeah. W- yeah, no, that sounds like a really good mm. tip, really, to, to make sure you download, because you could do books, music, yeah. videos, yeah, films. Exactly. Um, and uh, I guess not everyone will also have a data package that will allow them to, to stream. No, um, not at all. Video. Yeah, that's true. And it takes up a lot of your data. So really helpful tip there. Um, but great that you could stay connected with the outside world and, and I guess, people that were um, close to you. Were you allowed to use um, some sort of video chat sort of app like uh, Skype or FaceTime or equivalent? Yeah, there's no restrictions at, uh, at all on communicating with the outside world. Mm-hmm. And um, it is, it's a lifeline, but it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword, as they say, uh, because... Yeah. A lot of us ended up on our our phones almost constantly. Yeah. Uh, but no, we had WhatsApp. We had WhatsApp groups. We had a WhatsApp group for the entire group. You know, spanning spanning from mm-hmm. here to to uh, to France and also over to Spain because one of our friends ended up in in Spain. And then we had a, a very local WhatsApp group. Um, in the Royal free. And then we could, uh, yeah, we, we had video chatting, Skype, FaceTime, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So there's no, in that sense, there's no loss of connection and there's, they, they don't place any restriction on communication. I guess one of the challenges would also have been about access to information and, and sort of following the news. And, and uh, that may have been more challenging because I guess you could have been a feature of the mm-hmm. news as much as just tracking what was happening. Did you at any point decide to kind of manage an information diet or do a news detox because it was just too much keeping up with what was going on? I I, I didn't really. I should have. <laughs> that would have been a good tip for mental health, <laughs> no doubt. No, it it uh, I I wasn't good at turning off my phone. Um, I was there from the early hours of Monday morning to Friday afternoon and i think i turned off well i turned off my phone at night to go to sleep but uh during mm-hmm. the daytime hours i think i managed to turn it off for 45 minutes one day uh but others were much better at giving themselves a two-hour period with no no none of this digital communication um, and just mm-hmm. to turn off and that that would be highly recommended uh i think we just had so much going on well we all had different things going yeah. on yeah 
with friends and family and contact tracing and workplace. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot to handle. So you're up there in London in isolation. You've got some people around that uh, were sharing that experience. What was the most challenging sort of feeling to, to have to deal with? Um, I mean, there could be so many from fears about your health and those of those dear to you or being cut off and, and restricted through to just the boredom of having so much of ordinary life and your liberty stripped yeah. away. Well, I should make it pretty clear here that by the time we went up to the hospital, we were all, almost all of us were, were over, even though we tested positive on Friday. Uh, I think most of us felt, if not 100%, 90%. A few still had coughs. But uh, nobody was actually that ill anymore. And ne- none of us had gotten mm-hmm. ill enough, sick enough to warrant going to see uh, going to see the GP or going to the A&E. Um, uh, mm-hmm. We all have different illnesses. But uh, there might have been a couple with a, a big cough who would have eventually seen their GP. So for me, like worrying about my health wasn't an anxiety at all. I think for some of my friends who are non-medical, they might have been more concerned thinking that, well, you know, does does the healthcare system do these infectious disease specialists uh do they know something we don't know? Am I am I in for a mm-hmm. second round of this and is it gonna get worse? But I tried to reassure a lot of people. I felt completely fine that we had recovered well. So my biggest anxiety was really and, and along with a lot of my um friends was media attention. That was a huge issue mm-hmm. because uh, a couple of our friends had had lots of media attention and their names came out in the news early on. And uh, while isolated, they, uh, particularly one person, while he was uh, isolated, his family had to endure a, a lot of pressure from the press, you know, borderline harassment, knocking on doors, yeah. lots of phone calls. And, and even from his immediate family, it went on to, I think his parents got, uh, I think they call it door doorstepping, you know, just mm-hmm. out of the blue calls and people arriving at their yeah. homes. So we were all, we knew what was going on. We were trying to support him. Um, and then we were, Every day we were concerned about whether this would happen to our own families. You know, our names coming out would be yeah. a problem, could be a problem, and you know, there could be stigma for us with, in our work, with, our, yeah. you know, with friends or just with strangers who would know our names. But we were most yeah. concerned about what would happen with our families because we felt so powerless being in, isolated up in London. There wasn't a lot we could do. So that was probably the biggest worry and anxiety for all of us. Boredom, I don't think, was an issue for any of us. At uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the time period that we were in, because there was so much communication going on, and if you wanted, there was just dis- there were distractions. We uh, some some of some of us were much better than others at uh, developing a routine, uh, and some people mm-hmm. uh, were in longer than we were in in London. It's the the French crew ended up in the hospital at least a few days longer than us. So some people are very good mm-hmm. and disciplined at creating like, uh, you know, uh, exercise in the morning, doing uh, circuit training, mm-hmm. um, uh, making sure they turned off the phone and watched, uh, 
you know, watched a, a movie or, a, or, you know, TV, some kind of series. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I don't think, yeah, boredom didn't really hit us. And we thought about, um, we were kind of uh, joking that, uh, uh, you know, when you think about people in solitary, you know, who have been prisoners of war, or you think about Nelson Mandela, and, uh, you know, I, we, were, we were discussing how, you know, to survive that sort of setting, you often hear that these people develop routines, you know, yeah. to stay physically in shape, to stay mentally sharp. But, of course, they also didn't have smartphones and iPads binging away constantly. Yeah. And, and probably they didn't form their routines on day one. They probably... You know, we're overwhelmed with the situation and eventually figured out that to, to make it through, they'd have to come up with some, you know, be disciplined about it. So, um, yeah, so we were, so back to your question. No, we weren't bored. Some of us created routines. Uh, I think most, uh, quite a few, I think, were able to turn off their phone and others like me were dragged into it a little too much. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think you make the point very, very well that, you know, one of the hardest things to bear was this intrusion by mainstream media into the lives of the families of, of all your, your friends. And that I was thinking, you know, perhaps switching off notifications on your phone to all those mm. pings and calls to, to sort of pick the phone up again, you know, could have given you a bit of space to develop a routine that might have, you know, helped a bit. Although, you know, we're talking a short time uh, compared with... Um, those periods of um, people who are in long-term isolation. But, uh, of course, you'd need to be in touch because you were concerned not so much about the virus but about the stigma and the public attention and the intrusion of, of media, which is also very harmful. Yeah, I, I'd never been in, in really in that situation. I know the pros and cons of journalism and the, and the press, and I'm a big admirer of journalism and the free press and the role it plays. But I came to realize that there's this other... I mean, I know about the tabloids and everything else, but it never affected me personally. And and for me, it felt a bit ironic that my one of my biggest fears was that of, like you said, media intrusion, whereas on the other hand, I very much mm -hmm. admire journalism and journalists and what they do. So that, that, that was a, a new experience for me personally. Uh, you know, for us also, besides media, we're, we were all concerned and feeling guilty in a sense, even though we knew it wasn't our fault, that we were putting so many of our friends into isolation. So through contact tracing with public health, sure, we had to go through lists and name names. And it felt like something out of, uh, for me, it reminded me of, oh, during uh, Vietnam, you hear about uh, in, in the north and also actually in, in Nicaragua, where I spent some time, uh, after the revolutions, you hear about these neighborhood committees to try to call people out yeah. and point fingers. And I felt a little bit like I was in the neighborhood committee pointing my fingers at people and uh, condemning them to their fate. And I know that's hyperbole and, and over-exaggerated, but literally they would call us up with lists. I, I was at a party and they had to get the list of everybody at the party and they were just going down the list asking me if I literally talked to them. Initially, we were told it was 15 minutes, I think within two meters for 15 minutes, but then the advice changed yeah, to any face-to-face yeah. -face contact. 
So there's a whole issue about uh, identifying our friends and our work colleagues. And for me, besides family and, and unwanted media scrutiny and what that would do, I could I just imagine my daughter being really traumatized by that, people knocking on the door. Besides that, it was my work, yeah, place, yeah. which is, you know, you mentioned I'm a GP and I work yeah. in the A&E at Worthing. And Worthing is not so far from Brighton. And what I had to do yeah. was go, literally the consultant I was working with went through the rota. Fortunately, I'd only worked uh, two full days the week before. And at the end of that list, and she kept encouraging me, anybody you talk to, I realized for better or worse, I, I say hello to too many people at work for a, for a, a <laughs> pandemic-like situation. So I had to notify 50 staffers. That was doctors, nurses, all the ancillary staff, the housekeeping, the porters that I talked to. And they notified 50 people and, and had to send them home. So that night that I realized 50 people were going home, that night in the hospital, I had, I can't remember what they were, Richard, but I, I, they were classic anxiety dreams. <laughs> I can well imagine. I mean, the picture you paint of this burden of the impact, you know, you happen to be on a holiday with a friend who's been in Asia and it's just like a sort of butterfly yeah, effect yeah. really, isn't it? And and you're also, I think, as I understand what you're saying, sort of the process of actually being supportive to the country, to the health service, puts you in the position of feeling like an informer who is an impact on the lives of others, of organizations, and yet none of this, in any, I mean, if anything, you know, it's perverse, isn't it, that there you are, a sociable, engaging person, likes to say hello to people, and what a feeling of punishment <laughs> yeah. must have felt like. That's what's so, I guess, hard to bear about the situation we're all in, isn't it? That we just simply cannot know the consequences and a bit of tolerance, a bit of compassion, a bit of mm. sympathy, really, for the plight of anyone who ends up in your situation or gets that message to self-isolate. Um, it really puts so much in perspective. We were very fortunate. We didn't, nobody, none of our contacts got it which is very bizarre, very unusual. Yeah, but which helped relieve our right. sense of foreboding and you know, possible future yeah, guilt yeah. or guilt. Yeah, nobody got it, and uh, it's really quite yeah. remarkable. Well, just such an amazing story and so fantastic that you've come through. I thought as we edge towards sort of finishing our, our discussion, it might be nice to, to sort of plagiarize a BBC radio program and sort of think again if if you could have turned this to something a bit more sort of entertaining shall we say are there three famous people i'm going to put aside friends and family at the moment that if you could have gone into isolation with you might have left your phone alone a bit more hmm. I, I think we can keep yeah. it clean here <laughs> that's true it brings <laughs> up all sorts of possibilities uh I kind of thought it would be really important to laugh a lot. And uh, uh, recently I saw Stuart Lee, the comedian, and he makes me laugh quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I also thought of a, uh, uh, unfortunately, a, a comedian that's not with us anymore, Robin Williams. I think he would be quite right. entertaining. But also somebody who would know about yes, the darker right. side that's of right. how yeah. smart choice. Yeah. Um, a three. Well, I, I, I have over the years tried to get into meditation, and I thought of a uh, 
a psychologist who's also a leader, uh, who's also kind of a Buddhist mm-hmm. thinker in the U.S. Her name's Sylvia Borstein. And uh, I've heard some podcasts with her, and she's just very wise. She's an elder at this point, uh, very wise mm-hmm. and very compassionate. Uh, and she likes to laugh. I think she would be a, a great presence to have in isolation. Uh, I also thought about coming from a perspective of being a physician and, and the situation we're mm-hmm. in now, I think, having a having some kind of uh, interaction with, again, this is, a, this is somebody who's not around anymore, gone for a long time, but Rudolf Virchow is kind of the father, phys- German physician. He's the father of social medicine. And uh, I thought he would be quite a person to, uh, to have a dialogue with at a time like that. Well, that's a great combination of wisdom, calmness, and something to make you smile which sounds like a a really good tip for anyone who's going to be thinking ahead Um, and uh, perhaps downloading some comedy, some stand-up comedy. uh, videos might be one of those things that can just remind you of the other sides of life when um, Mm. the pressure is on. Well, Bob, I don't think we can thank you enough for sharing so much that I think will really help anyone who listens think about some of the possible things that could happen and you know the more we can share between ourselves i think all of us will be able to think better about how to manage this extraordinary phase of human history so thank you again and any last thoughts yeah, as well, we, we you know you come kind to of an end? That, uh, what i didn't really say is those whatsapp groups uh at times drove me crazy, but uh, they were such a, a, a wonderful source of, of support. And um, it sounds a little corny, but of, of love, really, between this whole group. We were all isolated across, you know, hundreds of miles. And um, we would, it felt very supportive. We joked a lot. And um, we also kept each other up to date on different information. And uh, would have been hard to go through it without that. So that, that's one thing. And then lastly, I, I guess I would just say, even for those on home isolation, which is completely different, uh, I would yeah. say turn off your phones and turn off your computers and turn off the TV occasionally and try to get some real, try to, try to rest your mind at times. So keep your, your offline mm. friendships alive, even if you're using tech, but also don't let the tech get you down and and sort of disrupt those routines that will also help us get through this. Well, thank you again. Get back to whatever life is like. Thank you very much, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Bob. Thank you.